This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today from around the world. My name is Bregna, and this event is brought to you by Haymarket Books and the Left Book Club. We're very excited to be hosting this long-awaited discussion on the political economy of Silicon Valley with Rob Larson and Wendy Liu. Before we begin, I'd like to quickly introduce the LBC. The Left Book Club is a subscription book club and not-for-profit initiative seeking to foster a spirit of collective political education. In this time of unprecedented uncertainty and hardship, we felt that it is necessary to continue building a sense of solidarity within our communities and learn from each other as we strive to create better alternatives. I'd now like to introduce our brilliant speakers today. Wendy Liu is a tech commentator, software engineer, and former startup founder who left the tech industry to pursue a master's degree in inequality from the London School of Economics. She has written for Logic Magazine, Tribune, and The New Internationalist. Wendy is the author of Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism, published by Repeater Books. Rob Larson is Professor of Economics at Tacoma Community College and author of many books, including Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, published by Haymarket. He writes for Jacobin in these times and current affairs. We'll kick off the discussion with opening remarks from both of our speakers, then proceed to a conversation between them, and hopefully we'll have some time at the end to bring in some questions from the audience. Wendy, Rob, thank you again for joining us today. Rob, we'll head over to you to open the discussion. Right on. Thanks, Brekna. So uh, obviously these are uh, kind of tumultuous times these days, a lot of uh, fast moving uh, global conditions. Uh, one thing of course happening right now, especially uh, here in the States, but around the world of course, is the uh, significant amount of uh, popular tumult and demonstrations uh, associated with uh, movements for inclusion and especially Black Lives Matter, you know. Uh, but so I think you're a uh, our viewers around the world will be glad to hear that big tech has completely uh, absolved itself of this issue. As you may know, uh, among the uh, ways that tech plays a role uh, in these uh, in this long struggle is that um, some of the bigger tech platform companies, especially Amazon and Microsoft, have developed this new AI-based facial recognition technology set where they're able to at least theoretically match uh, you know, sub-quality images uh, obtained through some form of surveillance with actual individuals. But there's, of course, uh, folks may know there's a significant uh, bias in those programs that is discussed very broadly, where they have much higher fidelity in matching male faces correctly and white people's faces directly. And as soon as we step away from white men, the uh, quality of the alleged uh, ID and recognition matches falls off significantly. And so recognition of this in these times, Amazon, 
uh, recently suspended its provision of that technology to U.S. police departments for one year. So their hands are now completely clean. That's that's nice. That should completely fix the issue. Microsoft is suspending that until they get national regulation. What we're seeing here is that you might laugh this off. Like, why is this, you know, is this really relevant to this broader movement in the streets? We, we can make a case that it is, right? Because, of course, Microsoft and Amazon are two of the very five biggest corporations in the world now, along with their fellow tech platform companies, Facebook, Apple, and uh, Google. And, of course, it's very historically unusual for the biggest, comp- the five biggest companies in the world uh, to all come from one sector of the economy. That's not uh, typical. But there are real straight economic reasons for that that we can look at, you know. So uh, in BitTyrants, I spent some time looking at just the simple, uh, uh, simple version of these uh, economic forces. The big one is what we call network effects uh, in economics. Folks may be familiar with this. You know, when you take your Econ 101 class, the way we lay it out is markets are all basically the same and they work with these sort of simple supply and demand forces and they reach a balance. And we get a nice, uh, well-behaving market with lots of little firms competing and so on. What you discover, if you actually look at how markets behave, is that there's a lot of variety. Uh, markets don't have one course of development that they follow and they're all the same. There's a lot of variety there. And if you think about it, you can sort of see why that would be. I mean, markets produce you know, shoes and computer chips and social media and back rubs and movies, very, very, very different goods and services. Why, if the markets are so different, you know, the products are so different, why would the markets be the same? And so when we look at these kind of markets, these markets, as we call tech, uh, to group them together into the tech sector, I see is that they're network mediated, meaning a big part of their value and their function is creating networks, so connecting in some way different groups of users uh, or uh, content creators. And there's lots of examples of that, like YouTube, which a lot of uh, people are viewing us on right now. It's a classic case, you know. So when people upload video to YouTube, that means there's a slightly larger library of video content for viewers to enjoy. Well, that big a library of content attracts more viewers, that growing audience attracts more video creators. And so markets like online video that have this network-based characteristic, they tend to have that pattern of that positive feedback cycle where early success in the industry brings more success and you end up with these gigantic incumbents that have monopoly scale or at least maybe oligopoly where you have two giant firms that dominate. So YouTube would be an example of an online video monopoly. And of course, that's a Google subsidiary. Facebook is another example, especially with Instagram and the other apps that it's absorbed over the years. And of course, uh, even your cell phone operating systems, uh, the Android system that Google uh, makes freely available for handset developers, and of course, uh, the iPhone software. Those things have their own platform features too, because of course, once you get a phone, I mean, what's the first thing you do with it, but load it up with the goofy apps that you like? Well, of course, you can't just get any app on a, on a uh, smartphone operating system. It has to be available in the store, which of course means it has to be ported, but also it has to be approved uh, by that operating system creator. And Apple especially is sort of notorious now for having a long list of reasons why it may reject the cool video game or convenient tool or health tracking app that you created. And it's a long list. And it, it, it even you know, openly says, there are, we may reject it for other reasons that we don't tell you about. Well, that shows you know there's a curating power there. And so when we have these markets, 
that are driven by networks, what you end up with is platform settings. And many folks may be familiar with this, but if you're not, platform just means a very dominant online hub of activity online these days, of course, uh, where many users and many consumers of content are drawn together. And the value of that platform is just that huge base of users and content creators. And that could be YouTube. It could be people posting on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, Google acts as a search platform for the entire web in that way. So it's that platform economics that leads these companies to be so gigantic. Uh, one way I like to refer to this is um, folks may be familiar with The Economist magazine, the uh, very easy to read and wretchedly conservative UK uh, economist mag. People like me think it should be called some economists. That would be a little more forthright. But they referred to these industries and these giant platform companies the phrase that they used was out-of-the-box monopolies, which is not typical is all for The Economist, which usually has that very you know, classical, liberal, pro-business, uh, free market capitalism is very competitive sort of editorial line. So that is a real uh, departure for them. And so at any time, these companies take some position on all the crises that we're going through. For example, when uh, Amazon and Microsoft decided to pull, at least for a time, the availability of their facial recognition software to all those police precincts. It matters because these aren't just, it's not just some corner store. Like it's friggin' Amazon. Like people realize the huge importance of that, but there are real economic reasons behind that. It's all that platform economics and network patterns that we mentioned. So there's more to say about that and the present movements we can pull it back to. But just to mention one other or two other sort of related things, we are a couple of crises deep right now, uh, especially in the States. So also there's an epidemic going on. You probably heard about that. And I'm glad that uh, you know our many UK listeners right now, you guys are about, oh, I guess like 6,000 miles from me right now. That approaches an adequate social distancing. You should still have your mask on while you listen to me though. Uh, but look, at the epidemic, it is absolutely acting in the favor of these companies. And this is something that even like the mainstream press has been discussing. I think we all know many of us are spending more time on stupid Facebook and Twitter, uh, watching more video on YouTube, uploading more of our notes and work materials into various clouds run by Amazon, Microsoft, or Google. Our reliance on these firms is inc was increasing already as of the beginning of this year, but it's really deepened it. It's quickened the pace, you could say. Uh, the epidemic that we're experiencing and which doesn't seem to have any end in sight because certain countries refuse to emba embrace national testing programs. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But these firms are growing uh, in that framework too. And uh, you know, also in, in light of the election we have coming up this year too, which is one of the, uh, the big ones, this is already going to be a crazy year before the wheels came off. Uh, but even there, Facebook and Twitter have been struggling with deciding how much they want to curate their platforms as far as content and you know, uh, violence uh, and other of, of the hideous things that people post uh, on these platforms. And just lately, just in the last few weeks, they've even start putting notices or disclaimers or tags uh, on even the president's. Uh, posts, which are usually filled with outright lies and even incitements to violence recently these days as the conditions deteriorate. So just to say, because of the network economics of the tech sector, it's connected to most of the big events of our society, including the several crazy waves of chaos that are washing over us at this time. So uh, as we move through uh, the talk and we get to where uh, folks want to ask questions, where we want to uh, discuss these subjects more, almost anything going on right now has its connection to this. So uh, those of you who want to ask questions, you have a pretty free hand. But that's sort of uh, the basic economic background uh, of the platforms that I wanted to talk about uh, and get off my chest.
Great. Wendy, shall we head over to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. And Rob, great to great to be able to do this with you. Um, I'll just start off by saying that my internet stopped working like an hour ago. And so I'm using cellular data. And so this might this call might be a bit choppy. And also I don't have access to my notes because apparently you need Wi-Fi to do anything in this world. So I'm just going to do the best I can um, off the top of my head. So yeah, so I guess I want to like maybe explain a little bit what my book is about. Um, it is a bit of a strange book in that the genre is like kind of memoir, but also kind of, I don't know, cultural criticism, theory, some blend of that. And the title makes it sound like it's a how-to guide, which it isn't really. Um, it's definitely misleading. But, you know, the, the book is mostly about my personal experience of being in the tech industry, being seduced by the ideology of the tech industry, and then later realizing just how hollow it was. Uh, and I'm trying to tell the story in a way that hopefully pulls the reader along with me and, I don't know, gets them to start thinking about the tech industry in, in, in a new light. Because I think a lot of people who are used to the ideology of the tech industry and who have you know, never come across a compelling criticism are probably going to find it hard to accept that there are these you know, massive problems in the industry. And so the way I try to do it in my book is I, I break it down into kind of three assertions. Um, with, and these assertions are things that you may or not may not already agree with. And the first I would say is that you can't understand the way the tech industry works without looking at the broader socioeconomic system that it's part of. And this feels like, you know, a pretty uncontroversial assertion. But at the same time, I think it's very easy for someone uh, who's, you know, working in the tech industry or like a founder or an investor to not really think too much about how the socioeconomic system works because they don't they don't have to. Or if they do, they have, you know, they have a narrow understanding. They think of capitalism as this wonderful thing that unleashes prosperity and freedom and they don't look too closely in the way that fails. So I think that's that's kind of the number one assertion of my book. I want people to start to, you know, pay attention to the way the broader world works, the history of it. Um, how do these systems interplay, like, play, you know, interact with each other? How, what are the actual incentives? What are the mechanisms that will, you know, guide how the economy works? Because you can't look at, you can't view the tech industry as disconnected from that as much as its adherents would tell you otherwise. You know, they might say like, oh, the tech industry, it's, it's about creating something entirely new, not beholden to the problems of the old world. That's not true at all. These companies are still growing in the same, you know, political, economic, social terrain. And they are, they're going to be limited by the same problems. Uh, and so the, the second assertion I would make is that this system, the broader system, is not actually about freedom. It's not about prosperity. It's not about democratizing anything. It is about dispossession. It is about concentrating wealth. It's about limiting the freedom of some so that others can have an inordinate amount of freedom over other people. And this is something that I think it gets lost a lot in the discourse, because if you look at the marketing material of any tech company, they'll say something like, we're democratizing finance, we're democratizing access to information or whatever. And it's like Robinhood, for example, the, the, the trading platform, you know, they let you trade stocks. They literally say that they're democratizing finance. And it's like, for whom? To, to what degree? I mean, you're democratizing it by giving some people who already have money access to it. But in the process like any any platform of this nature, you cr you create and entrench and deepen these inequalities that already exist. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not like, you know, Bitcoin is another example of something where you have this talk of democratizing, but instead, because it exists in a system that is already highly unequal, 
and in some ways it amplifies those inequalities, you, you can't purely democratize without recognizing the ways that the existing system does not allow for democracy. Um, and then the, the last kind of assertion I want to make is just that this whole thing is morally objectionable. It's, it's not okay. You know, Silicon Valley, the way it works now is pretty awful. And if you don't see that, maybe it's because you're not paying attention to the ways that it actually fails so many people. Because the thing is, it is actually quite good for a lot of people. If you are, you know, if you have a good job in the industry, if you're, if all you do is like benefit from it, then, you know, it's hard to understand why people might criticize it. But I think the fact that there are people criticizing it is, is the thing to focus on, right? Like to use a software analogy, if you're creating a piece of software and some people are saying, this is amazing. I love it. And then like 99% of people are saying, this has so many bugs. It doesn't even load for me. Then it's like, you can't say it's a success. Um, and then this kind of just brings it back to what is the, what is our economic system for? What are we trying to do? Is the goal just to make like a few rich people really happy so that they can have mansions with like 20 bathrooms and have whatever the hell they want and just be able to go anywhere they want while everybody else is just like seeing their freedom limited? Is that the goal? Because if that's the goal, I would say capitalism is doing an amazing job. But, you know, for me, that doesn't seem like a worthy goal. And I think if you asked most people on this planet, they would not really be satisfied with such a goal. So, yeah, I think overall, the the goal of my book is to demonstrate how Silicon Valley, despite its rhetoric of, you know, being inclusive about democracy and freedom, it's actually trapped in this broader system that limits what it can, what any company in this industry can do. And also, uh, it, a lot of the rhetoric, I think, functions to disguise the, uh, the harm it's doing. Uh, and maybe it's because the people who are who believe in it don't actually see the harm. You know, I, I don't necessarily think everyone in this industry is evil. I think um, even the people who are, even the billionaires, even the people who are making these bad decisions, I think some of them are just kind of naive and not necessarily able to see the problems that are being caused. But ultimately, I think it doesn't matter. I don't care if people mean well or not. I think what needs to be done um, is there has to be a broader structural transformation that prevents certain people from having so much power in the first place. And I think ultimately there's a question of um, how do we want technology to be governed? How do we want it to be developed? What kinds of tech do we actually want to exist? Because, you know, the world we're seeing now, like the kinds of tech that are being built, you look at it and you're just like, the only use for this is surveillance. The only use for this is to, you know, make people's lives more miserable. And it's like, do we want more facial recognition technology? Do we want, um, you know, Amazon workers to have like these collars that, or like bracelets that monitor every movement? And it's like, well, maybe Jeff Bezos would like that, but he's not the only person who should have a say in how this world is is governed. Um, and and yeah, and just to you know, uh, add on to what Rob was saying about these tech companies and the statements, the really inane statements they've put out about. Black Lives Matter while still making money from, you know, police departments and the military and ICE. I think it's just, it's absolutely typical because like for these companies, they all have this stated commitment to, I don't know, diversity and freedom and whatever, but that commitment can only ever be skin deep because their entire, their entire, um, the, the driving engine behind these companies is, you know, profit. They have to try to make money. And when, they are located in this, you know, broader economic system that has that only only allows certain ways of making money. 
then of course these companies are going to end up doing things that many of us would find horrific, like profiting from ICE detention centers or um, the U.S. military or police departments. And in a sense, you can't you can't exactly blame these companies for doing something that's in their DNA, right? Because like this is just they're, they're accountable to shareholders. They have to try to make money. They want to play nice with the government. But at the same time, I think hopefully recognizing that leads you to another realization, which is that this whole thing is just broken, right? Why do we have the system in the first place that encourages, um, you know, people who maybe mean well to create products that will do harm to other people? Like, because this is just, this is just how the system works. So yeah, I think, you know, overall, like the, the way I would look at the tech industry is that like pretty much any other really profitable and lucrative industry, it's constrained by these broader socioeconomic forces. No matter how much you would like to pretend it's not, it is. You can't become a trillion dollar company in this current era without doing some pretty awful things that are exactly in line with what companies have been doing for a really long time. Like, like let's look at let's look at Apple, let's look at Amazon. I mean, you it's so hard to understand how these companies have made their money if you don't look into their labor practices, if you don't look at these um, kind of geopolitical uh, historical forces that have allowed these companies to profit from really cheap labor um, and, you know, accumulate a lot of wealth as a result of that. And I think overall, like if you, if you, you know, take one thing away from what I'm trying to say is that next time you look at any of these companies, PR statements or founding stories or whatever, consider that it's a lie and that it's just like this kind of myth that they want to tell you like, like any company, it's an ad, right? When, um, when a tobacco company has an ad saying like smoking camels is really good for your throat or something, you, you know, to be suspicious when tech companies do that, I think we should also be very suspicious too and recognize that they're trying to sell a vision of themselves where their dominance is good for the world. So they want us to believe that what's good for I don't know, Amazon, Facebook, Uber, Google, Apple, whatever is good for everybody. And it's not, it can never be. That's not how these companies were designed. That's not where their structures are. Um, and we should be very, very careful about falling for that kind of narrative just because, you know, if you, I mean, in a sense, any kind of concentration of power to this extent is dangerous, but for these tech companies, what they're doing in particular is they're profiting from this kind of technology that allows them to scale very, very quickly and gives them a lot of power in ways that we haven't really seen before. Like we've never had to deal with this kind of, um, this degree of surveillance. We've never had to deal with that in, in human history. And that's pretty scary to me. We don't know what that could mean. We don't know how that's going to reconfigure our world to make it even more dystopian than any of us could imagine. And, and so I guess I'll just end by saying, um, yeah, I mean, like, I'm looking forward to this discussion. Uh, I think I, I had I had some other things I wanted to say, but I don't even remember them anymore. Um, yeah, I think what's been really inspiring to me the last couple of years has been the tech worker organizing movement. And, you know, I think that speaks to this broader realization of people in the industry and outside the industry, too, recognizing that these companies are, are not actually just making the world a better place. They don't only care about the greater good. And that, and they're also recognizing that they as workers have a particular amount of leverage due to their place in production and that they are able to use that leverage to try to change the system in, you know, in, a, in a more structural way as opposed to just 
through individual action. So I think that's been really inspiring. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, things are bad. If you look around the world, it's just like right now, it feels very clear that things are pretty awful and they're not going to just magically get better. And I hope that, I don't know, people take this opportunity to think like, what can I as an individual do? Um, you know, what movements can I join? What moments in history are similar to this that we can learn from? And like, what can we do to make this world actually a better place because, you know, the tech companies, they're, they're not going to do it. They are profiting from making the world worse. Thanks. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a lot there. It really makes sense. I, Wendy, what you were saying there, uh, I thought just really resonated with me. It's like you're saying, like these firms are, you know, like they're so idealistic. And I've talked to a lot of tech people myself and like usually like their heart's like in the best possible place. And often it's like this sort of missionary goal, like make, you know, Facebook wants to connect people and Google to make all the information available and they'll leave it at that. And like you said, you know, they, they're corporate entities, they have their own, you know, public image and their own spin that they want to put uh, on all of their actions and where we would kind of roll our eyes when we see the cigarette companies do this. Uh, you know, a lot of people aren't quite that, you know, uh, maybe critical yet of big tech, but it's fascinating, you know, because if you read these companies' origin stories, like some of them know about network effects and some don't, you know, they vary. Uh, but every time, once they reach that point where network effects and that positive feedback cycle of more users of your platform attracting more creators than attracting more users, once they reach that hyper fast growth point, and as they always say in the industry, scaling up, you know, reaching bigger economic scale, like it's, there's never a question about how they're going to do it. They never say, oh, well, maybe we could be a public entity and the government through a public appropriation could fund our expansion. Like that's like that is possible, but it's never even considered. Like I haven't found a, heck, a history of these companies that even flirts with such an idea. It's always, well, let's go to some sleazy venture capitalists with way more money kicking around in their bored, half-retired lives than they should have. And let's use that to scale it very quickly. And again, like the the need for that money is very real. Uh, you, I'm sure in either of our books, folks can read all about this. Because these companies end up being like semi-monopolies, you know, these giant platforms, the growth they go through is just completely crackers. This insanely fast compounded growth rate. That's expensive. You know, once you get to the point where YouTube has 2 billion users and Facebook also a similar user base, the amount of servers and telecommunications equipment and cable that's required to keep your YouTube latencies low and your Zoom and Skype calls basically going through fairly smoothly. It is extremely costly, even with the very stripped down, super specialized computers that make up all of our cloud data centers. It's an expense, you know, and very quickly, these firms move past their cute. We made our servers out of Legos in the old days, like very quickly. It's can we bring in enough venture capital cash to grow these data centers? And otherwise, you're going to end up like Friendster. You know, the early Facebook competitor, which had just that classic struggle that firms go through scaling up fast enough. And soon they had horrible latencies, really bad load times. And when they added ads, that slowed it down, too. Of course, we've all seen how those things load before your content does. So when these firms wanted to grow and even again, and they're giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying they really started with this sort of idealistic starting point. And some of them like Google, you can clearly see that. And others like Microsoft and Bill Gates, they pretty much have a conquer the world evil plan from day 
one, as far as we can determine now in retrospect. But even in those sort of naive early days, it's just, well, let's get some money and form a corporation. And then it's exactly what Wendy was saying. Like now you have firms, like what's Google's priority or Apple's or Amazon's? It's, you know, they're publicly traded firms. They're corporate officers, especially their CEOs, but all of their senior executives were the corporate officers, as we say. They have that fiduciary responsibility mm -hmm. as traded firms. They're legally required to put the firm's you know, profit and revenue growth and therefore its stock price you know, before any other consideration like, is this good for the national electoral debate or will this really help us deal with a public health crisis that has uh, gotten out of control? So it's pretty uh, yeah, rough to see these firms you know, like Google, which is so idealistic, and we're going to make all the information available. And my God, you know, they started out as grad students in their early Stanford paper, which you can still read online to this day. Like they never got someone to take it down in the department or anything. Uh, but it says like advertising based search engines. And of course, that's the 90 odd percent of Google's profit, according to their financial filings, comes from showing you ads in search listings and on YouTube. They said ad-driven search engines will have an inherent conflict of interest. You know, are they showing you a search result because it's relevant to your query, which is what they're supposed to do? Or is it an ad which they were paid to place or maybe they bid on it for, through whatever process? Uh, so they started out like really being leery of that, but they wanted to scale and so it's okay, well, we'll do an IPO and we'll become a company. And again, you can read about how they did a very idiosyncratic IPO. They violated some of Wall Street's conventions. They're just complete free thinkers. Now these guys aren't even running their companies anymore. You know, by now, Gates, uh, Brandon Page, I think Zuckerberg's kind of, and Bezos would kind of be the two exceptions there, who are kind of two of the more mercenary ones to start with anyway. Uh, you know, these figures drop out, and now these are just classic Fortune 500 corporations. So I think that's maybe the most important thing we could say is these firms are very useful. You know, I say in the first page of my book, I use these platforms every day. But that's the point. They're so valuable. Like, try not to use them. You can't get away with it. Like, the U.S.-Russia nuclear hotline has a backup, and it's a Gmail account. You know, so it speaks to the fact that these firms grew up in capitalism. They become giant capitalist institutions. Just instead of packaging mortgage securities or selling petroleum products, it's selling our attention to advertisers because you wanted to watch a fun YouTube clip or search for a place to get a bite. Yeah, for real. Um, my connection is kind of poor right now. Sorry if it, this cuts out. Um, I think, your, Rob, your point about fiduciary responsibility is a great one. And, and, you know, the thing to remember is that it's fiduciary responsibility all the way down. It's not just on the level of, you know, these multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies. It's also at the very beginning. If a company is small and wants to raise venture capital, then they'll have to go to someone who has a fiduciary responsibility to their limited partners, um, which may be, you know, university endowments, pension funds, family funds, sovereign wealth funds, whatever. And these inv these uh, investors, they are bound to do something that will to invest in something that will give them a return. And so, let's say you you know you come up with this brilliant idea to use technology to um, make people's lives so much better, giving them housing, giving them like access to services they need, but there's no good business model, like you're, you're probably not going to have a great return. The in investors you talk to will just be like, I'm sorry, maybe I can give you like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Maybe it's just, if it's like social entrepreneurship and it makes me look good, but I'm not going to give you like my money and support. Whereas if, if you made a company that's, I don't know, like selling, selling ads to kids or just something, you know, I don't know, some blockchain enterprise software thing, 
investors will be lining up to write checks for you because like they, they, they can't, they're structurally, you know, forbidden to invest a ton of their money in these like not, not for profit social good ventures. They just can't, most of them can't do that. There are some impact investors, but like, it's like a blip compared to the amount of money that goes into, I don't know, Uber or like, I don't know, Deliveroo or whatever, all these, these companies that are, you know, very much for profit um, at the expense of workers. So I think it's worth remembering that, you know, just all the way down this entire industry, it channels you toward the path of becoming a Delaware C-Corp where, you know, the investors and the founders get a lot of money, but then the rest of the people who work on it just get almost nothing. And yeah, and I think when, when these companies talk about like democratizing finance or whatever, um, you just have to look at their own cap tables to see what exactly they mean by that, right? Because like any, even a company that says that um, they really, they really care about income inequality or whatever, they're not going to give the founder the same amount of shares as like the janitors or the cafeteria workers, even though that would be probably the most powerful way to improve income inequality. They're not going to do that because it's like, that would be weird. The industry does not want that. It's like your investors would be like, what's going on with this cap table? Like, dude, this is, this is stupid. Yeah. And so I think it's worth remembering that this kind of inequality is baked into the industry. The fact that the industry produces a lot of billionaires while also immiserating a lot of other people is not, it's not an aberration. That's not a problem. That is the system working as designed. It's supposed to do that. It's supposed to increase inequality. And like, you know, these people will, the people who would defend that, they would say that, well, like inequality is fine because that's how we get innovation. But I mean, going back to Rob's point, like, yeah, we all, we all use these technologies. These technologies were built by workers. They were built by people who, for the most part, aren't, aren't billionaires, right? Like the people who are billionaires, they don't actually have to sit at their desk and work on anything. They don't have to write code if they don't want to. The people, all of the products that we use were built by like massive teams of people who for the most part are not paid that much. Some of them might have stock, but at the same time, like the vast majority are, are not ever going to become billionaires. And then that raises the question of, could we have a different socioeconomic system where the same products are built and maybe even built better, maybe even built by like more diverse workforces um, for, I don't know, for better, for better goals. If we had a system that was more about equality and more um, and less about, you know, making a few people billionaires, I, I really think we could. I think we could have better tech if we did not have the kind of rampant inequality that we have now. I don't think it's necessary for Sergey and Larry to become billionaires just so that we could have, I don't know, like Gmail or something. And I mean, remember that the people who work on Gmail, you don't know most of their names. Um, they're, they're not like gallivanting around the world um, in their private jets because they're, they're, they're working on it. They're, they're workers. And, and I think the fact that um, we don't really know the names of most of the people who make these products, it, it's just symptomatic of, it's just emblematic of how capitalism works on a broader level where you have um, so many people, you have like this, this whole workforce of people who are building the products that we depend on. And then you have a small number of people who take credit for that. Every, every Tesla car, right. Is Elon Musk is not, he doesn't make any of these cars. He just, you know, goes on Twitter and just like talks about how amazing he is while in the meantime, people are going to work in his factories and maybe even getting sick and getting COVID through going to work. Um, and yeah, this is just something we kind of take for granted, but I think it's worth, um, I don't know, we should all like kind of force ourselves to remember just how messed up that is that we have this kind of division of labor and that this 
division of labor is in fact tied into the broader political economy of, of these companies um, and, and, how, and how the world works in general and that we should, we should definitely kind of reject. We should think, yeah, like, can we do this better? Could we build the same kind of technology that we have or even better technology without making a single billionaire? Like, let's just say like billionaires are off the table. <laughs> no billionaires. Maybe like, let's cut, draw the line at like 10 million and then maybe like bring it down from there. But like even 10 million, just does anyone need $10 million in a world where people, some people are like struggling? Um, and then think like, how else could we arrange the, this mode of production so that we still build really cool technology, but in ways that are more useful for more people and without this, you know, really wasteful inequality that we see now. Well, that's such a, like that's really that's that's very compelling too because I mean that's something even yeah you know, I tend to want to give these guys the benefit of the doubt and say well you started idealistic but to grow you realize you must become a corporation it's the capitalist system but it's completely true I mean everyone now is sort of familiar even if it just from the cutesy Silicon Valley TV show we realize that like to grow and to become any kind of fast scaling firm of any type you have to go and kiss the ass of some weirdo eccentric VC entrepreneur type so it's true like from the very beginning. It's not even just that like the technology that gets developed will be that which fits within capitalism most conveniently, but even the form that it takes too. I mean, you know, Google, you know, fundamentally is a really positive institution on its bones. I mean, you know, making the internet is so vast without search, it's just unusable. Online video is such an important part of our lives, you know, partially for better. So these are like really valuable services. But I mean, how does it make money? Like we said before, it's all through ad display and ad time. So it's you know, making the web searchable, making all this video available to us, making these slick smartphone operating systems that we need. That all comes out of Google's divisions. But fundamentally, the money that pays the bulldog and creates that insane large uh, double-digit billion quarterly profit for that firm every three months. It's all stupid ad time. It's all turning the web into a dumb, ugly billboard for crap that you looked at once and the cookies are tracking you uh, ever since. Like, it is just like such a, it's such a waste you know, when you think of what the potential for these uh, firms really would be if they were liberated from that near-term quarterly profit number driven uh, uh, structural requirement, which they absolutely do have. We've been talking about that. So I think that's really interesting. But also uh, something, Wendy, you said a minute ago, too, like uh, about freedom and its relationship to these these companies in this market. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is something that I really that I think we should be thinking about more because, of course, you use these these companies products. They often are provided literally they're free to use, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Google, uh, you know, a lot of the apps that we get on our phones. You know, they cost you nothing. But of course, as we now most people now realize we do pay some cost for that in terms of the apps uh, tracking us or harvesting our data or being used to affect sales later on uh, in some way. But fundamentally, like freedom in the market economy is something that's supposed to be one of its strengths, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're free to choose what product you're going to buy. You're free to choose the career you're going to take. Joseph Stalin doesn't tell you what to do. So we say, okay, we know it's a free system, the marketplace and capitalism. Everyone's free. And, uh, and that's nice. But of course, what you're saying right there is the rise of Silicon Valley, apart from all of its other effects that we've been looking at, like it's the force most recently driving a whole new wave of billionaires and other super wealthy investors. And like you said, some early hired white collar employees may get some lucrative stock options, which if the firm is a successful IPO, can make them millionaires. Like that's, you know, fair enough. But if you look at today's billionaires and our giant firms, it's like stocks in their portfolio, you know? So I don't know. 
in my last book, Capitalism Versus Freedom, I just wanted to take up that point because it really annoys me when my economist colleagues talk about the free market and how utterly unfettered we are and how no one controls our actions. It's the biggest crock of shit in the world. You know, I mean, yes, you're free with your modest budget, which may be larger, maybe nothing. You're free to choose what you buy, but they'll all be market commodities designed to track you to get the price down. I was talking to a student a while ago who was like, I feel free. I bought this great TV and it was so cheap. It's 900 inch TV and it cost me a couple hundred bucks. Like, yeah, that's because it's feeding, it's tracking what you watch and feeding that back to some scummy developer or some third party data tracking firm. Like you just don't know it because you're not really engaged because who reads the legal term of service with their appliances anyway? Mm-hmm. I seldom do. And if I'm not doing it, I doubt anyone is, you know, like that's, so, that's like my wheelhouse and I'm not even doing it. So if you look at capitalism, like, yeah, you might be free to buy things with your modest budget. Well, the real freedom is like, what are you able to do if the society could give you a search engine that doesn't track every humiliating detail you've ever searched on there before you wised up to the fact that they're tracking you? Like that would be an improvement, I think, for our freedom, you know, and even every one of these online platforms, it's not hard to envision a form of it that's not based on preying on your privacy or setting you up for some commercial transaction down the road that you don't know about. Like we could have those things. And that gets into the idea of positive freedom or positive rights Mm -hmm. that maybe if a society is able economically to provide a certain crucial service to people, you're not really free unless you're free to partake in that. So you know, Medicare for all is a classic case. Like it's not that we lefty types want uh, healthcare for everyone and the society can't afford it. We can totally afford it. The psychotic amount that we spend on healthcare, we could easily provide everyone in the country with you know free health insurance that would actually cover your health problems instead of bankrupting you through coinsurance, copays, deductibles, and network coverage limits. It just takes longer for you to go bankrupt with commercial, you know, job-based health insurance. So we easily could provide people with those things. We friggin' won't do it because we have a large, hyper-profitable industry because it holds all of our lives at stake every time you get sick or have a car crash or something like that. Well, positive freedom would be, let's have Medicare for all, and maybe everyone has a right to health care. Now that the economy can clearly afford that, what's the basis for saying, well, you're unemployed or you're a gig worker or your work employee insurance is just shitty. So you're still going to go bankrupt and then die from your health problem. You know, So I think that as, that idea of freedom totally applies here. Like We could have online platforms that don't have all of these twisted side effects that you find out about five years after you Googled the really embarrassing thing that you're thinking about Googling listeners. I don't know what weird thing you're into. That's none of my business, but Google knows because we all treated it like it's a mechanical oracle before we kind of realized what was going on. So I think we should think of freedom as giving us some kind of right to a non-capitalist version of these platforms so that we can have all of the real promise of these things. Like I use dumb social media. I have friends who I'm not close enough to to call on the phone, but it's nice to know how their lives are going and stuff like that. Like these are useful Many of these, anyway, uh, applications are useful. Having a non-capitalist version of them that doesn't make us pay so much on the back end, uh, I think that would be an idea of freedom that uh, we could speak to with a lot more confidence than what we're looking at right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I really, I really like this emphasis on freedom, and I've I've heard you talk about your previous book about capitalism and freedom in a I think on a podcast, and it really resonated with me because I think. Um, the the word freedom is just so ambiguous that it can mean so many things. And so you can say, oh, yeah, you have so much freedom in the market. And technically it's true, but it's the kind of freedom where it's like, you know, you're really hungry and you go to there's only a Taco Bell. 
And so you have all the freedom to choose between all the different things on offer at Taco Bell. And it's like, well, what if I want something that's not like this really greasy taco? And apologies to anyone who is a fan of Taco Bell, <laughs> you know, no insult to Taco Bell, but it's more just like the freedom that's on offer is so limited and they never talk about that. It's always just this, like you have freedom in the abstract. Well, what does that freedom look like? Is it freedom to choose between these really unappetizing options? Do I have the freedom to I, the freedom to actually participate in the development of these things. Can I have any input? No, that's never the kind of freedom that we have as consumers. And I think it's worth remembering the, that we're giving up that freedom, that we've never had that kind of freedom for most of us. Anyone who you know isn't actually working at any of these tech companies has just so little say in how anything works. And even the people who actually work at these companies, I mean, it's not like they have that much decision-making power either. If you're like a junior engineer at Google, you don't get to decide how Gmail works. You don't get to decide whether or not YouTube shows ads everywhere. It's these directives uh, come from above and they come from, you know, at the end of the day, the quarterly stock, um, like the quarterly like earnings. And it's, uh, these companies have to make it look like they're getting more and more profitable over time. And, you know, the, which is ridiculous because how much money do these companies have? Some of them like Google, Apple, they just have massive cash hoards. What are they doing with that money? I don't know, just waiting until they can repatriate it. I think they've already repatriated some because of the tax cuts, but it's like, how much money do you need? What is it for? Um, in the last few years, we've seen these companies just like kind of get, get worse uh, along the lines that you'd expect in terms of labor practices um, and things like that. And um, a couple of years ago, Bloomberg reported that Google, Google actually had a workforce that was mostly contractors. I think that was surprising for a lot of people because Google has this image of being a really employee-friendly place where they really care about their employees. They really invest in them. They give them freedom. And it's like, okay, some of them, yeah. But at the same time, I mean, like any other publicly traded company, it has to, has to release these financial reports that make it look like it's making a lot of money per employee. And the best way to do that is just to not have that many employees. You just have independent contractors. You hire people through vendors. Um, and even if they end up doing essentially the same work as your full-time employees, it's better if you just don't pay them that much and you don't give them benefits and you don't give them stock. And it's like, the, of course, Google's doing this because this is the natural behavior of any, you know, amoral company in this like profit-oriented system. Um, but it just, it's so, it's so depressing because like Google is making so much money from ads. They don't have to do this. And at the same time, they also don't have to be making this, this much money from ads. Like, I don't know if anyone has used YouTube lately and like without paying for the YouTube red subscription, but it's unusable. There are like 10 different ads. You, even if you're just trying to watch a video, there's like a 20 second ad in front of the video. There's like an ad below it an ad there are ads everywhere. And then it makes you wonder like, why is Google doing this? They don't need the money. They really don't. Um, and the only answer I can give is that they're doing it because they can, because it's possible for, for them to make this much money. And somehow, you know, we've, we're living in this culture that has convinced us that if you can make money, then it is wrong not to make money. And so these companies, they like pursue profit through whatever means are available to them under the assumption that because it's possible, then it's morally right, which is just like, it's horrible. And, and um, you can't even necessarily point to any individual to blame there because this is just like how the market works. Companies that have CEOs or executives who are not ambitious enough 
will usually find that, you know, they're just going to drop drop the executive, replace it with someone else. Um, I remember this happened with American Airlines like a few years back where I think the CEO said he wanted to pay um, workers better. And then the stock market reacted really badly. They're like, you can't do that. And I think, yeah, it's worth remembering that while there is some possibility for these you know, companies to behave better, there is something structural that is, you know, the root of this problem. It's, it's in their DNA that there's only, there's only some degree of freedom within the, you know, just kind of ironic way of talking about freedom. Um, but yeah, and I think what this comes back to is like, we're talking about these companies and how, as they grow bigger, they become these kind of giants, these monsters really. And in a sense, it's maybe baked into their DNA. Maybe it's from the beginning, but it's also not something that's inherent to the technology itself. I think we have to remember that it's not that like, any search engine is necessarily going to be awful. But if you have a search engine in this like broader capitalist environment, then, if, you know, it's, it's very hard to make a search engine that's really successful and dominant without making it to a cash cow. Uh, I think it's like, that's, that's just like what the system incentivizes. And if Google didn't do it, then someone else would have come along and done something similar. You know, that's, that's kind of how competition works. Um, and then, what that, what that kind of makes me think of is like, well, these companies, all they want is success, but like success at what cost, you know, what is the cost of that success for, for everybody else, for the, for the world as a whole. And even for the people who are running it, because like, what does becoming a billionaire when you're like 25 do to you? It's not, I don't think it's good for anyone. I, I think it's, just, it's like bad for your soul. It, it's like just having too much power um, in a world where no one really deserves that much power. And I think it's, it's bad for everyone. And we have to abolish billionaires, not just for everybody else, but also for them. You know, I think they, they deserve better too. Just like a kind of a weird way of putting it. But, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It actually, it, it would be for their own good. I mean, my God, any time you look at, and not just billionaires, although clearly them, but also people who are like, like, like celebrities or powerful people in government. Like after a while, if you're powerful or super rich or just pretty and famous, like after a while, everyone around you always kisses your ass. Of course, you're going to lose touch with reality. I like who, how are you going to keep like, well, I should remember I've got foibles too. If everyone is constantly telling you how amazing you are, you're going to just, where do you end up? You end up being Elon Musk doing Coke and tweeting and knocking 20% off your company's stock price valuation because you said some vague threat, which turns out to violate SEC rules. And you're used to no one telling you about your downsides. I mean, you know, the president right now is the ultimate version of this. That guy hasn't been criticized by an employee. I was, you know, probably his whole life. I mean, the man grew up with nannies, you know, it's not to be expected. These people have no ability to take criticism or stock of themselves or to take a moment, step back and go, am I on the right side of this? Like that is something that, you know, Bill Gates hasn't thought in at least 40 years, you know? So that's a really great point. We don't need these billionaires. And again, of course, when you're in their workplace, like you were saying, I mean, that's a totally accurate point. Like if you're some you know, modern, you know, medium placed engineer or a junior coder or something, like you don't have the power to go, well, I don't know if it's right that we maximize YouTube viewing time by steering people toward crazy fringe right-wing nonsense. Like the, you're not in that position. This is an institutional goal. Forward the institution process or you're going to be expelled from it, you know? And so when you brought up earlier, um, 
like the tech organizing movement right now, that to me is one of the most promising things uh, mm-hmm. of today. Like I'm sure we have a number of current and maybe former uh, tech workers uh, watching right now and uh, folks who may uh, participate in the Q&A in just a second. Please, we're happy to talk about this. Uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say, certainly. Um, I've occasionally gotten to talk with some of the folks at Code, the um, communication workers, tech organizing arm, and they are very experienced, very savvy uh, people trying to just help these workers. Like part of it, of course, is just realizing their own power. I mean, that's something that we on the left and in labor are always saying, you know, yeah, Ayn Rand says that if the capitalists stopped working, then we'd all lose everything. And that's the Atlas Shrugged stupid message, you know. But of course, the reality is if Elon Musk overdosed on Coke tonight and his workers all went to work tomorrow, like the company would keep working. Only maybe with the workers there, maybe they would go do staggered shifts rather than putting themselves in harm's way for the new epidemic, you know? Like the reality is it's the workforce that keeps that going. And that's true across the board, but above all right now, you all in tech, like you have a significant ability, you and of course with your coworkers, to decide how these platforms evolve, what ideas people are presented with in this. This year is taken on 1968 proportions. Like our actions this year are, it looks like are gonna be things that we spend our lives looking back on and feeling good or bad about. This could be a good time for you to be talking to your coworkers critically and maybe trying to begin some kind of informal or side organization where you meet and just get outside that tyrannical control that we get in the workplace. Again, we're talking about freedom. What freedom is there in the workplace? My God, like everyone knows your employer, the only limits on their ability to tell you when you may go to the bathroom to pee, the only limits on their power to control you in the workplace are set by law and often laws that are won by the labor movement 80 years ago that we're trying to get rid of now. Uh, So there's no limit on Jeff Bezos's ability to sweat every drop of labor value out of you before you're forced to quit uh, after a couple of months because they're ridiculously high turnover there. And also, again, as Wendy mentioned, the contract workers, it's incredible how big of a proportion of the tech workforce those folks make up, you know. And again, it's your classic contract work. You know, you actually work for some temp or manpower type firm and they make a deal with Facebook or YouTube or whomever and you're working for them, not for the platform. So you don't get, yeah, the super slick storybook workplace benefits where you bring your dog and you get buffet and so on. You're working at a shitty temp job in some Google, in in some cubicle, working, we should say, perhaps the worst jobs you can think of. I mean, jobs get pretty bad. That's fair. But I think one of the worst ones would be, you know, if you're a content moderator for YouTube or Facebook, you're watching the most twisted, evil, damaging shit that you can behold in 10, 15 second clips. And you decide whether there were a person who reported it is right and what layer of getting kicked off the platform it gets. And now you're watching the next child soldier getting killed or a, yeah, a frigging assault or a mass shooting or violence you know, against you know people or their animals, like the worst things you can think of people put on these platforms and some poor bastard working for probably less than 15 bucks an hour on the West coast or you know, around the world somewhere. I mean, constantly moderation, of course, is very globalized these days. God knows how little they're getting to really have lifelong mental damage from this stuff. These people should be organizing, as well as your cool, more marquee, glamorous uh, tech workers and code writers and stuff. And for what it's worth, I mean, I'm sure Wendy feels this way too, like we are happy to be resources to help you all in your organizing to the extent that we might be able to give you a little more you know, context for it or help in any way. I'm sure that's something that we would like to say, like that is... I can't think of anything more important right now in this absolutely havoc filled year than to see tech workers organizing. And it is happening. I mean, 
You know, Google gave Andy Rubin, that developer of uh, the Android operating system after they bought it, this huge multi-million dollar golden parachute. And then we find out about the horrible sexual harassment allegations in his unit of the company that he left without consequence for. And Google workers are doing walkouts over that shit. And they're refusing to uh, help develop AI for the Pentagon to make murder drones to blow up people in Yemen for no reason. And we have Facebook doing a virtual walkout over uh, not doing anything to moderate uh, the president's posts. These are really encouraging signs. And I would just say, too, as much as the headlines right now are just filled with heinous bedlam, bear in mind there are positive things happening. But usually on that smaller level of people just talking and having those human connections with their coworkers, realizing the power and the potential influence they got these platforms and uh, trying to use it in a positive way. And so we'd be delighted to hear from you guys, too. Yeah, yeah, I would just echo that. Um, and I think on the point about tech worker organizing, I just think it's just, it's so important right now, but also there's so much to be learned from the past. Because I think one, um, maybe on a bottleneck, like just problem that people sometimes come up across is the fact that it feels like the tech industry is so different from other industries and it feels so difficult to organize because people in tech are sometimes in this kind of liminal space where they don't think of themselves as workers. They're more like professionals. But at the same time, I mean, so many workers throughout history have thought the exact same thing. Their bosses have told them the same thing. Um, and I would recommend this uh, zine from Logic Magazine, the Making of the Tech Worker Movement, which is um, kind of like a recounting of a lot of tech worker organizing the past few years that also situates it in the like, you know broader historical, political, economic context. Um, because I, I really do believe that people in tech um, are able, like, have the ability, have the capacity to organize in a way that is um, relevant, uh, like, appropriate to the way the industry works. I, I think, you know, I, 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 it's hard because I know that the industry, in a way, feels like a like a lost cause just because of the fact that there's so much money in it and there's this really strong ideology. I don't think that's going to last, though. Is is the thing. Um, and if we look at what's happening during this pandemic, so many layoffs have been happening. And you know, Rob, you mentioned how a lot of tech companies are doing really well during the pandemic, even as some of them are doing really well, there are some that are just completely collapsing, right? There are all these tech companies that have like Yelp, for example, or Airbnb that have been doing just really struggling financially. They've had to do mass layoffs. They've had to shut down offices. And I think that's, you know, that's like a, like a, an omen for some other stuff that's going to come to, that's going to happen to the industry where, we're going to see the industry become a little bit less friendly towards the, you know, white collar workers who've previously been just treated very well. And some of these companies are like flat out just saying that, right? Mark Zuckerberg announced that remote working will be allowed, but if you leave the Bay Area, you will probably be paid less. And, you know, and uh, Uber had this thing a while back where they, they just did this, these mass layoffs. And the CEO of Uber was saying that, um, they're probably not going to hire back everybody and they're going to instead do more outsourcing just because that's like, that is financially prudent. That is what they should be doing to deliver value for their shareholders. And I think it's worth remembering that like, even if you are an engineer who's making like millions of dollars right now, these companies don't actually care about you as a person. They care about what you can do for them. And the moment that changes, the moment where they realize like, oh, we can save money if we hire like a team of people in this other country with lower labor standards, they're, they're going to do that, right? Like they're going to do that. If they can, they're going to find ways to do that. They're going to find ways to rationalize it. And so I think, you know, no matter how good you are as an engineer, your the way you're treated in the labor market 
has so much to do with these external factors outside of your control. Um, and it's, there's so little that like we as individuals can do about that. Um, you can't change, you can't stop these companies from, you know, going to other countries or replacing you with people who they can treat less well. Um, um, unless you have power as a kind of collective, like along with your coworkers. And I think it's hard. It's sometimes hard for people to internalize that. I myself found it difficult to kind of accept this just because I kind of grew up on this like Ayn Randian individualism where all that matters was me being really good. And that as long as I was really good at what I did, then the world would like reward me. That is a seductive thing to believe. But I think like has never been true. It has only ever been true in, you know, a very small, in this like a microcosm and only to to a certain extent. But I think what we're seeing now is just like the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is saying that Facebook will pay you less if you move. That shows just precisely how much compensation is not tied to your value as a human being or, you know, as a worker, but it's tied to what the company can get away with paying you. And, you know, if you move to Portland, you're not going to be a worse engineer, right? All it means is that they can get away with paying you less because they've found a way to rationalize it. So I think it's like, it's worth remembering these companies do not care about you. They really don't. They, the, the people who are in decision-making roles, they may, you know, have their own morals. They may have their own like preferences for how to pay people. But at the end of the day, there are these like broader structural forces that determine how people are paid and how people are treated in this industry. And that there's so little that any individual can do to change that. And, you know, if, if there's like this wave of outsourcing that's coming from the industry, then you as an individual, like the best you can hope for is just to try to make yourself indispensable. But at the same time, there's only so many people who can do that. And, um, I think I personally think like the the more strategic and more promising angle is just don't even try. Don't don't even try to, you know, to escape as an individual, try to change things in a more structural way. You know, unite with your coworkers, talk to other people in the industry, see how you can change the balance of power while you still have power before before it's too late, right? Before you're like unemployed and you found that the labor market has turned turn against you. It's gonna happen. It's this like I I was reading this book called down and out in Silicon Valley, which is a, a great title. Um, That's it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's by these psychologists who practice in Silicon Valley and it's about the dot-com crash basically. So it was written in, I think early two thousands and it's just these psychologists who talk about their experiences, um, you know, working with these clients, most of whom are high earners in Silicon Valley who all of a sudden they had to go, they had to deal with this massive economic recession and they were all just like, that can't be happening because I'm so brilliant and I have all these degrees and I've, I make so much money. There's no way I could suddenly be unemployed and unable to find a job. It happens. It has happened in the past. It will probably happen again. We're in a bubble. Um, every bubble will collapse eventually. And just the fact that it hasn't happened until now, I mean, it, I think it confers people this feeling of invincibility, invincibility, which is, it's wrong. It's, it's an illusion. Um, you know, no, no worker is invincible forever. The only way to kind of escape it is to be, to become like a capitalist and not everyone can be a capitalist. So yeah, I'll, I'll end there. That's great. Thank you both for this. Uh, yeah, I think so. Thank you both for this incredibly interesting discussion. Um, I think it is a good time to bring in some questions from our audience.
Um, so just to follow on from what both of you have been saying, we've had a few questions on union, unionization within the industry, particularly in the context of litigation and NDAs being used to attack workers. Uh, I wondered if you could both speak in a bit more detail on how workers are organizing within the, within the industry and how workers and particularly precarious workers are collectively building power to improve their working conditions. Yeah, well, my understanding is, um, is what I've been able to learn about uh, workers who are directly organizing the field. Like the first thing that strikes me is like it is like a very, I mean, maybe siloed is a cliche, but it is like the truth that like there are s such a small number of people who are able to do the engineering for any one of these particular projects, you know, like drone AI or, uh, you know, cookie tracking and, and data harvesting. Like it is a, a relatively uh, scarce labor market in general. I mean, as everyone recognizes that. Everyone knows when you go to school, you're supposed to learn to be a software engineer now. And yes, end up being a capitalist who, who might be replaceable later on. Uh, when you look at this, though, I mean, the first thing I notice is, is how much fear the platforms have of this. So again, going back to Google, uh, the big, very senior and very respected data scientists who are working on, you know, training up AI algorithms to be able to do actual, you know, drone surveillance and piloting work and so on. Uh, we have uh, some of their internal memoranda and communications. And when you're, you know, creeps like me who like to write books about these, these uh, characters, the very best thing that can happen is when some conscientious, good-hearted person takes a big risk because it's dangerous, because they'll sue you to kingdom come if they can ever catch you. The best thing you can do is please leak to us, outsiders, uh, some of these internal documents, because my God, yeah. the number of bodies that are buried in these things is uh, just very extensive. And again, when you know Jeff Bezos got divorced recently, and uh, for a moment it, it looked like it might go to a you know a, a court divorce case over the assets, which is terrible for the kids in any divorce. So I'm glad for the little Bezos children that their parents had an amicable, amicable divorce. Good for them, bad for me, because it meant that none of Amazon's and Jeff Bezos' records went into court and were subject to discovery. It's too bad. But when you look at these leaked documents, what you discover is the firms fear action by the workforce. They fear them organizing or you know uh, saying things to the press, even merely that. you know. And so we have uh, the record of uh, the senior data scientists working on that weaponized drone AI technology saying, please, you know, uh, you know the public facing uh, senior staff, please make no mention of drone AI. That is a complete red line. For some reason, everyone's just very unhappy about that. And indeed, as soon as it got around through Google's internal, internal uh, you know, worker chat logs and so on, uh, they ended up having to have multiple uh, informational sections back to back so that Google's global workforce could all participate in that. So, I mean, my, the first thing that strikes me is, uh, you know, beyond like precisely what steps uh, people should take to organize their workforces, the, the promise of it and the, the fact that you could have real significant power within the firm is reflected in the level of fear that the management reacts to every time this becomes even a possibility. You know, uh, So there's that. But then also, every time uh, these workers take an action, I think it, it wakes up the rest of the uh, industry. Because again, like Wendy was saying, like we're not looking at an industry. I mean, first, it's a relatively young industry, but also not one that even has a long history of unionization and collective bargaining like you would find in you know classic manufacturing or even in services. And so it's a very new area. And so, I mean, if, if, if the questioners uh, might be asking, like, what 
steps can they take to unionize their workforce? You know, that's something I'm on the outside of. I don't come directly from the industry. I'm just an economist. I look at everything with cold eyes and uh, dissect it uh, in a just in a detached manner. Uh, but like, it's very, very visible the amount of passion on the issues and the amount of fear that these folks have. And so, because though there's none of that history of unionization, every time one of these events publicly happens, like uh, two months ago, I guess it was when Amazon had those big serv- uh, you know distribution center walkouts from staff who are you know have a number of demands. But the biggest one is you're making us work and work like at holiday levels of business because everyone's quarantined and scared to shop. We're getting so little in the way of protections against the virus. And there's a full on epidemic happening. We work in you know sometimes close quarters, working famously hard all the time, sweating, breathing hard right on each other. Not so easy to be running for Jeff Bezos while you have a couple of masks on. You know, So that became the very prominent and a lot of national coverage there, like that moved Amazon's policy just with a couple of walkouts. And I'm not trying to minimize the amount of work and risk that goes into a walkout. But every time one of these things happens, like the companies react, sometimes, yes, it's with some nice mollifying statement, but other times it's with real policy concessions. So just my first thought is you workers will probably know more about how to organize your new kind of workplace than I would be able to advise you. I mean, people who are from the industry like Wendy might have something more substantive to say, but I will just say every time it happens, it scares the hell out of these most powerful people in the world. I mean, who's more powerful than Jeff Bezos, the world's richest man. If you could put the fear of God into him by a couple of Staten Island workers walking off the job for a couple of shifts, it shows the potential that is there at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, it is worth remembering that we are in pretty early stages of this moment in the industry. Um, and I think there's like, I'm sure there will be a lot of innovative things coming out of the tech worker movement. I think, you know, in, in terms of advice, I guess I would say pay attention to um, other struggles in other industries because there's so many of these happening. And it's you don't really see a lot of this in like the mainstream media. Like you're not going to see it on the front page of, I don't know, New York Times most of the time. But there are like labor actions happening all over the world in every industry you can think of for a lot of the same reasons that people would be organizing in tech. Um, I remember reading this uh, this book about labor organizing at um, logistical choke points. It's called, it's called choke points. And, you know, it, it featured workers in fields as diverse as like dock workers or, you know, Amazon warehouse workers, but also truck drivers in Indonesia who are carrying the fuel, you know, from, from, from the um, refinery to the port. And it's like, they also were dealing with contractor issues, like this two-tier work system where the contractors are paid less money and they don't have benefits. It was like exactly the same as what's happening at Google. And I think it's worth remembering that, you know, whatever labor issues are driving people to organize in these other industries are probably, you know, mirrored in what's happening in the tech industry and that um, there it, it's possible. Like some of these workers are organizing in much more difficult conditions where there's much greater fear of reprisal and they're able to do it. And I think it does take a lot of courage. Um, it is difficult. I, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to say it's like easy or that anyone should feel compelled to do it, but I think it's, this is just how history works. Like this is how, this is how progress is made, right? By workers joining together with their coworkers and demanding something better than the morsels that they're handed out by, by capital. Uh, and I think in the last few years, some of the really, I don't know, exciting, inspiring actions I've seen have included, um, workers quitting publicly or other, just beca- when they've exhausted all of their options or otherwise 
staging some sort of coordinated action to say, you know, we don't like the way this company is doing things like Project Maven a couple of years ago. I thought, thought it was amazing because you had all these workers at Google doing whatever they could, playing like their own roles in trying to change the company's stance on this um, contract with the U.S. military. And it took a bunch of different things, including multiple high-level software engineers all quitting on the same day to send a signal to management that, you know, we don't want to do this. And I think there's room for stuff like that. Um, and it's not necessarily easy. Like, I'm not going to say, you know, you have to do it, but it's more like it's worth examining what possibilities there are from quitting to maybe leaking, if that's if that's the only option, or even just create some sort of like internal campaign, just making a lot of memes, talking to your coworkers. Uh, I think it's worth learning from labor history and seeing the ways that people have approached this in the past. Because, you know, for one, it's even though the tech industry is still new, there is like quite a history of labor organizing within the industry at all these different roles, um, including so, like software, software roles. In the, I think, late 1990s, there were these bug testers at Microsoft who unionized. And I don't think it was that successful, but I mean, uh, they did it. And it's not something you learn about in computer science class. Like I've never learned anything about labor history, you know, until a couple of years ago. Um, but I think it's something that people have been able to unionize in the past and that like, it's, it's not always easy, but it's, I think it's always worth doing. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, what is a union? It's not necessarily about like being belonging to some sort of legal structure. That's, that's part of it that that might be a, like a useful way to do it. But at the end of the day, it's all about like bonds of trust between you and your coworkers. Do you feel like you have each other's backs? If one of you were to quit or do a walkout or something would the others support you, that's what it's all about. Um, and that's something that is, I, I don't know, you can just build it just by like talking to people and um, sharing, I don't know, just like talking about your life, talking about your criticism of, of the industry, talking about how you feel. Um, and just having bonds with other humans in a way that is not really, not really encouraged by the industry as it is now. You know, they I don't, I think like, even though these companies love to talk about collaboration and having people work together, they don't actually want their workers to collaborate. They don't actually want their workers to side with each other. They don't want people to share pay. They definitely don't want that, right? Like there've been people who've been punished in the past for trying to like have more pay transparency among, among employees. But yeah, I think that is the best way to counter it is to do what your boss doesn't want you to do and find a way of doing that. That like is kind of low risk because if something bad happens, then, you know, your coworkers have your back but while, you know, I'll still like, I'll recognize that yes, there is some risk involved no, no matter what, especially if you're on a visa, which a lot of people are. Um, and yeah, companies will make you sign NDAs and whatever, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, it's your decision to make. Are you going to, how are you going to outweigh, how are you going to weigh the risks, the, the pros and cons of taking action versus just kind of like continuing to go to work for a company you don't respect um, in a situation that you feel bad about? The way I think about a lot of tech compensation is that the more you're paid, the more it's like it's a bribe for doing something that you know is kind of ethically wrong. And yeah, it's, it's like, it's weird, but you know, you have to decide, like, do you want to take this bribe or do you want to find a different way of living, like maybe getting a different job or organizing within the company? And, you know, that's every individual has to kind of make that calculus for themselves, for themselves. But I think that is a, that is a important way of thinking about it. Thanks both. Um, 
So Montana from our audience would like to know what you think nationalizing the big five tech companies would look like and what possibilities this would open up in the U.S. and worldwide. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, so this gets to what can we do with these platforms if we had our druthers and could uh, change the way they operate fundamentally. So nationalizing them is always something that's an interesting option uh, for a lot of large entities, especially when they have something like a utility uh, aspect to them. So folks, you know, you know, uh, utilities often refers to like very staple industries that have certain economic patterns. So you think of utilities, you know, like your electric and water bill and so on. And often these are industries that have really, really strong economies of scale. So they end up being monopolized, you know, like when you move into a new apartment, there's usually not 30 power companies and you pick one, it's call the power company by tomorrow or your fridge won't work anymore. So because those are monopolized industries, utilities are often heavily regulated by the state on some level or often yeah, publicly owned through the community or nationalized in some manner. Uh, there's a lot of variety in that. And so a lot of people are wanting to draw the parallel between nationalizing or having a public utility like for gas or something, and then drawing that over to other monopolies that we have, like these giant tech platforms, which have kind of different economics behind their monopoly, but the monopolization is just, you know, a matter that anyone can see. So that's definitely something to consider. Like nationalizations have been done in a number of ways. Typically they're done with compensation. So the state will, you know, take all the equity owners or the stockholders or whatever of some firm, like Britain's railway system, for example, back in the day, and give them some compensation. And usually when you look at it, it's a fairly large amount of money. And often these are just wealthy people who bought some pieces of that utility in the past. So it's money being given to the already rich by the public. And then of course the people being, you know, losing their property are saying how little I'm receiving for this railroad stock that my grandfather gave me uh, when I was uh, you know, 16 or something. So people are usually pretty happy on, uh, unhappy about it on either end. But you can imagine that being run and administered publicly, like say you know, a publicly controlled version of Google, where we're trying to just employ you know, our, the very complicated and sophisticated algorithm writing technicians to give you the best search outcome possible rather than the best search outcome possible with a bunch of dumb ads at the top with a decreasingly visible disclaimer indicating it's an ad. It can be easy to see how the service could be improved. And I will say, I mean, this may be a painful moment for my fellow Americans, but the late campaigns of uh, Senators Warren and Sanders uh, had some very, I thought, uh, detailed and you know, relatively promising uh, sort of rough outlines for how uh, these firms could be uh, nationalized and taken apart. With Warren, it was a little bit more uh, breaking up these companies where you force them to divest in some way. So like making Facebook sell off Instagram and WhatsApp, maybe make Google Google sell off YouTube or not have control over the Android operating systems anymore. Uh, and that's fine. I would say the thing about breaking up firms, like Microsoft also was almost broken up in the 90s before George Bush came to its rescue. Breaking up the firms, it means they're smaller, which you know, on the face of it is better because they have less money and fewer people they employ, so that's good. But also, it doesn't make these uh, markets not monopolized because of the network effect. Like if Google Search was separate from YouTube, they'd still tend to be monopolies. You know, the most used search engine, Google, has the most training for its algorithms, so it will tend to be the best search engine, you know, up to a point. And likewise with YouTube. I mean, the whole value of YouTube and Facebook themselves is that everyone's on them. 
And that shared network hub status is something that gives it its value. So there we look more at something like a nationalization, like a utility. And those campaigns, we're looking at that. And there's some different ways it could be done. Usually it's something that involves a big check going back to people uh, you know, who have all the vested or non-vested stock options in them. So it's debatable how much that's exactly the right way to go. To me personally, just to say, I, the thing I talk about in the last chapter of BitTyrants is more about socializing these platforms, which could happen with or without a nationalization. But there we'd have the tech workers and those poor bastard contract workers deciding all the things that Mark Zuckerberg and Google CEO get to make now, having that information that they normally hoard, that management keeps to itself, you know, and making those decisions. And to me, the real wrinkle in socializing, you know, having worker control of these platforms compared to maybe socializing the oil industry or something, is just to recognize that we humble, you know, end users, we are part of the workforce of these firms in a meaningful way because it's our goofy YouTube clips that YouTube you know, hosts. It's our Facebook posts that they monetize and our sexy Instagram profiles that they make money from. So there's a very non-trivial way in which we are just part of that workforce. And so if we were going to have some worker control, it would need to involve some some mechanism for user control or influence over policy uh, as well. So nationalizing these firms is something that should definitely be on the radar, though. <laughs> and it, you know, obviously, the platforms themselves are not thrilled at that idea, uh, and they fight it pretty aggressively. And we're eager to dump all over Warren and Sanders from a great height. You know, big surprise. But uh, nationalization, uh, I, I think, is very promising. But again, we wouldn't want to have you know a, a publicly run version of Google that's still pays for its bills by tracking us and selling us stupid ads. And like Wendy was saying, giving you three unskippable ads before your three minute YouTube video you were going to watch. Like, what is the point? So doing like nationalization is very thoughtful, but it depends on who is in control and what, and therefore what the priorities are going to be. And I'm sure Wendy would agree with that. Yeah, definitely agree with that. I think um, the nationalization conversation is better than the breaking up conversation because, you know, it, it points to the fact that some of these products should not be within the realm of the market and governed by the profit motive. But at the same time, I mean, more than just nationalization, I think we need some clarity in that we're not talking about just having like the Trump administration run these things. It's more like we need a more democratic way of running these companies. Nationalization is a very broad concept and we can have good and bad ways of nationalizing them. And, you know, I think we would both want the the good way, which is like, socializing, like you're saying, um, having workers and users having more control, having a more, in a way, maybe decentralized. I think there's like, there's a lot of room for exploring different ways of running these platforms. And I also think it's very different for each platform. And, you know, we have to think about the specifics of each. And like in each case, you know, you look at Amazon's web services, how should that be run versus Amazon's retail arm versus um, YouTube versus Facebook or something. And I think it's different for each case. And sometimes what we actually need is for the, maybe you need more of a protocol system where instead of like this one centralized platform, you have a protocol and then people can make clients or something. I'm not really sure. I think I'm personally really open to lots of different ways of doing this, but in general, I think we need to take it out of the, um, the realm of the market and also make it more democratic so that end users have more control. And I think that actually leads into the, entanglement between intellectual property and the success of these companies, because, you know, a company like Google or Facebook or Amazon, Apple, like they, they don't actually own that much, you know, hardware or anything. They don't actually own that much property or anything. Most of their money comes from the fact that they own intellectual property. And that means the algorithms, but also the, um, 
the gateways, like the branding, the fact that when you type google.com into your browser, you get a very specific site owned by a particular company. And that I think is, is worth remembering. Um, and then what can we do about that? Some of the intellectual property maybe should just be public domain or open, or at least, you know, a, some sort of, um, commons based license. And that way, instead of the technology being hoarded and developed for one purpose, it's possible to have it more broadly available, have people develop it in a, you know, more decentralized way. Um, I think there's just, there's like a lot that can be done here. And if, if we restrict ourselves to this like very market-based thinking, then it's just, we're losing a lot of possibilities because there's just, there's so many different ways that these companies could be governed to produce better outcomes for, you know, the people who matter. But right now it's like, it feels like the the conversations that are just like, should these companies be broken up or not? Um, should there be slightly better legislation? Like, yeah, sure, maybe. But also we need, I don't know, different values, different ways of thinking about how innovation should be conducted, for whom, who should be a stakeholder. And we're not going to get that with the corporate structure as it exists right now. Like this, you know, Delaware C-Corp cap table where the founder gets like 20% and Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia Capital get controlling shares. Like we can't have that with the way Silicon Valley works right now. And I think it's, it's so important to think about ways we can improve, ways we can actually innovate on that. Um, I think innovation is a concept that we should all embrace, but innovation for the right purposes, not just for, you know, making more billionaires. Great. Thanks. Um, so we're running out of time. I think this might need to be our final question. Uh, we have an interesting one from one of our viewers on the macho culture in Silicon Valley. I wondered if you could speak uh, a bit on the gendered and racial dynamics in the industry, in addition, of course, to the exploitation of its workers. Yeah, well, I can say at least a small thing about that. You know, obviously, uh, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a straight cis white man. I have layers of privilege on me, like the Michelin Man. Like I can't be hurt. But uh, just reading about uh, the industry, just keeping up with it, it is amazing to me. I will say, I've had my eyes. You know, I've considered myself a feminist for many years. I have had my eyes opened by the Me Too movement. I always kind of thought, you know, I'm an economist, I'm critical of capitalism. So I think people get a raise or they become millionaires and they think like, oh, I'll have money and power and luxury and elite lifestyles. And that's true. But also it turns out half of it is, oh boy, now that hot tomato in accounting can't say no to me anymore. Like you realize like the power structures in firms are so real and the way that people immediately apparently immediately use them to try to gain control and to you know, use them as a way to get, you know, to protect themselves with their power when they, uh, you know, can commit sexual harassment and just like the day to day belittling and demeaning of workers who people perceive as being below them on a social totem pole in some way. It is amazingly extensive. And I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier, like the Rubin uh, case where the fairly long internal record of the, uh, you know, the Android owner before he sold it to Google and then went to work there and see the division, uh, a fairly long record. And then eventually like, okay, you know, Rubin needs to go. Well, here's his $10 million golden parachute, like just the opposite of consequences there. Like that's a large reward for it. So it's clearly a, 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 a really, really major issue. And I mean, the industry at least, you know, makes gestures in this direction and admits it has a problem at least, but it's such a ugly 
like there's not agreement on it. Like that famous case of James Damore, you know, the former Google engineer uh, who put up a n- number of posts in the you know, internal discussion forum uh, on these platforms, and uh, to the effect that you know, white men, you know, we're just naturally gifted at this. Uh, isn't it amazing that we who have the most privilege and the most resources given to us and the most social support and we're the universal default in all media until like the last ten years or so? Isn't it amazing that we're the ones who have all the success and uh, and do all this work for the platforms? Pretty embarrassingly shallow stuff. And then, of course, he was forced out for these fairly ugly views and then ended up trying to sue Google and discovered that because it's private property, he's a libertarian. It's private property, so he can't sue them for that. It's, you know, you have free speech in your business. I can just fire you. So he sued Google under like some California law that says you can't fire people for their political views, <laughs> like using some relatively liberal uh, law. It's, it's a pretty striking thing. So just to say, it's clearly a gigantic issue and the industry is doing what it can. But my God, like I will say I have had my eyes really opened on how broad and pervasive this issue is, yeah, especially in tech, which is just so famous for having this lopsided gender imbalance that there's clearly a, a lot to be desired there. And I don't, I don't think you can say that the corporate form has helped with that at all. I mean, that is the environment in which men get power and then use it to control their women's subordinates. I mean, it's a fairly relentlessly heinous, heinous picture. So I will, at least what I can feel qualified to say about that is it's not an argument for keeping these giant power structures in private hands, at least. Yeah, agreed. And just to apologize if there's any construction sounds happening in the background, my neighbors are like, they're Burning Man art people. And I don't know why they're still making art when there's no Burning Man this year, but it's just, <laughs> anyway, it's actually not that loud today, which is better than usual. But um, yeah, I mean, that's an important question. I think it's worth recognizing that the industry, even as it has kind of admitted the problems it has in the last few years, it's still there's still a very strong reactionary backlash where there are people who absolutely deny that there's a problem or that it's worth even caring about like social justice or inequity. You know, there's a strong current of people who are like James Damore, who are like, oh, the industry is gender blind, it's race blind. Like, no, it's just, it's not, it's really not. Um, and if you can't see that, then maybe you are the one who's blind. But yeah, it's um, it's really infuriating because like there's this veneer of meritocracy where people claim that they just right out of nowhere, they, you know, they pretend that things are fine and that people who are not doing well in the industry are just not good enough. Um, which is just like a, like you're saying, Rob, like a really shallow way of understanding it. But I think that does make it hard to advance the discussion because then you have people who will always say like, well, you know, this person's just complaining because they couldn't hack it as opposed to recognizing that there are these structural barriers. And like, Surely even the people who think tech is a meritocracy recognize that the rest of the world is not a meritocracy and that there are all these barriers uh, that prevent people from getting to these um, you know, successful places just because of their gender, their race, of the place that they're born, all, all these different things. And that even if tech is trying to be a place that is um, ameliorating some of these problems, it can't entirely escape them. If you know, it's you can't have a meritocracy when the rest of the world is not a meritocracy. At best, it, meritocracy can be like a horizon to strive toward, but it's not something that's going to be achieved overnight. And I think people in the industry need to they, they need to be like always on the lookout for the ways that the industry um, is not acting in accordance with its ideals of being, yeah, like meritocratic. It's just because it's 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 almost impossible to become that way unless you're like actively actively trying and yeah it's been really disheartening to see the last few years like 
even as we've been having broader conversations around gender and race, there's still just this massive backlash among, you know, mostly straight white men who are like, oh, but I don't see discrimination. I have never been discriminated against. Therefore, you haven't either. And it's like, that's not, that's not what the conversation is about. Like, try to, try to use your imagination. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's tricky. And I, I think the, you know, efforts towards improving diversity in these companies are, it's really important. But at the same time, you know, that's not by itself going to necessarily make these companies better because the people who are entering the companies, like, you know, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, different demographics, they will find themselves in subordinate positions because of the way, you know, capitalism is structured. And so if they want to have any real power, they're going to have to build it like by probably by organizing um, because, you know, you, a company like Google, if it hires more women and more people of color, it's probably going to do that in these inferior roles where it's just not going to pay them as much money. It's not going to give them full-time employee contracts. And that's not going to change on its own. That's These companies have structural reasons for doing it that way. They're kind of preying on existing socioeconomic divisions um, and they will do everything they can to like exploit workers. And so, yeah, you know, if we, if we don't, like that. If you don't like that the industry works this way, then it will have to be, um, you have to be challenged through building power from below because like, this is, you know, preying on, um, demographic, uh, preying on like these existing socioeconomic, um, divisions is just exactly how capitalism works. And yeah, that's, that's not going to change overnight. Hallelujah. Thanks, Wendy. I think that's a really important point. Um, thank you so much, Rob and Wendy, for this brilliant discussion. And thanks also to our viewers for those excellent questions. Before we close, uh, just to remind all of you, if you'd like to purchase Wendy's and Rob's books, please do so directly from Haymarket and Repeater's website. Please do also check out subscriptions to the Left Book Club and get in touch with us if you'd like to set up your own reading group. Thanks again to our friends at Haymarket for co-hosting this event with us today. And thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.